friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio for the year 2012. I hope all of you out there had a happy new year and a Merry Christmas and a nice, warm, safe, happy holiday. And I hope you used it to get some rest and recuperation with your friends and family and loved ones as I did myself. And uh, it was a very nice and restful new year. But uh, as we were resting, the world continued to spin on, of course, in all of the myriad ways that we saw it spinning at the end of 2011, because ultimately it's just the turning of a page on a calendar and is a completely arbitrary occasion. So unfortunately, there is no rest for the wicked and there is no rest for those fighting the wicked either. So we are back here on Corbett Report Radio for another year of broadcasts in what promises to be a very interesting year, if nothing else, as so many things continue to come to a head on the economic front, on the police state front, on the uh, World War III front, on every possible front. So I hope that you are ready for another year of exciting broadcasts here as we continue to try to bring you the people and the newsmakers and the pundits and people that you can listen to from a real independent perspective. And on that note, coming up later this week on the broadcast, uh, tomorrow night, in fact, we have Denis Rancourt, who is a professor or a former professor at the University of Ottawa in Canada, who will be on to talk about, well, numerous things, I imagine, but we'll also be talking about a recent article he's written, a very interesting one about how uh, the, the how physical pain can be induced through the, the dominance hierarchy. A very interesting discussion with Denis Rancourt every time. So if you haven't heard of him before, please look him up at CorbettReport.com and listen to some of the interviews we've done in the past. And then later in the week, of course, we'll have the regular Thursday night broadcast with James Evan Pilato on Food World Order and Friday night highlights. I, I don't have a guest lined up for Wednesday night yet, but that may change, and I will, of course, let you know when that happens but tonight we are honored to be joined on the line by someone that we featured in our recent edition of the Friday Night Highlight edition of this broadcast, where we went over Canada versus the New World Order, and we highlighted the work of Kevin Annette. And uh, Kevin Annette is at kevinannette.com. He's a writer and researcher, a former minister of the United Church, and he has been fighting tirelessly, diligently, and without much praise for years to draw attention to the hidden history of Canada's genocide, the Holocaust of the natives, native Canadians in the Indian residential school system that was uh, administered through the Canadian government with the Anglican United and Catholic Church. So, uh, Kevin Annette, it's great to have you back on. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here again. Well, it is good to hear from you again and to, to know that you're still out there, still doing this incredibly important work that uh, that we have highlighted in the past, but unfortunately it continues to go on. And it is a uh, grisly, uh, grisly task indeed that you've set for yourself. And I am so glad that there are people like you out there who are doing this work. But before we get into the real meat and potatoes of all of this and some of the well, rather grisly discoveries that you've made recently. Uh, perhaps we should first uh, just let people know where they can go to to get your work. Of course, there's hiddenfromhistory.org, but I'm sure you have a number of websites where people can go to find out more about the developments here. That's true. We uh, Actually, for people who want to see the hard evidence, you can actually see it online now. My research is in a book called uh, Hidden No Longer, Genocide in Canada, Past and Present, and it was actually in a number of different libraries, and over the last couple of years, those books have been mysteriously vanishing from the shelves of these libraries. So we figured it's time just to stick it up online so the world can see it. So it's posted now at www.hiddennolonger.com. That has a lot of the eyewitness testimonies that I've gathered over almost 20 years now, survivors of these these 
internment camps. They were, uh, you know, called residential schools, but very little actually actual education went on in them. Um, and uh, the Indian hospitals and the the other evidence of of these crimes are all posted there on hiddennolonger.com. Excellent. Well, I, I'm so glad to hear about that. In fact, I'm just hearing about that for the first time myself, so I'm looking at it right now, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. But let's take our first break. We'll be back in just a few minutes with our, tonight's guest, Kevin Annette of HiddenNoLonger.com. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're speaking to Kevin Annette of HiddenNoLonger.com and several other websites, which we'll get into in a moment. But if you go to HiddenNoLonger.com, you'll be able to find an online downloadable PDF version of Hidden No Longer, Genocide in Canada, Past and Present by Kevin Annette. So uh, absolutely valuable resource there. So I do suggest that people go and download that and make use of that resource. But uh, Kevin, before the break, we were talking about this website, but I understand you also have some other websites you'd like to direct people to as well. Well, you know, the first site you mentioned, hiddenfromhistory.org, actually has posted our documentary film, Unrepentant, and that was actually the thing that opened up a lot of this to the world, especially in Canada. It, it put a human face on this whole genocide, and it won a number of awards in the U.S., at uh, different film festivals and that. So people, you know, should watch that as well at hiddenfromhistory.org. But finally, uh, the tribunal I've been working with for a couple of years, International Tribunal into Crimes of Church and State, has its own website as well, and it's itccs.org. You can follow a lot of the updates on that. Excellent, yes. And I suggest people that do do that, and I would like to get into a little bit more about that tribunal specifically, mm-hmm. but first, perhaps we should uh, jump into things in Medias Res here with an article that was posted on kevinannette.com back on December 6th of uh, last year, 2011, it was an article entitled The Bone That Could Change Everything, A Time to End Our Complicity in Murder and Reinvent Canada. And it starts by saying, quote, The tiny bone weighs hardly anything, and yet it is the weightiest evidence in Canadian history. The forensic specialists are nearly definite that it's the upper thigh bone of a small child, maybe four or five years old. This month, their tests will confirm what I felt was true when I recently lifted it from the soil near the former Anglican Indian School in Brantford. I guess that would be Brantford, Ontario that the first of Canada's disappeared, the missing and murdered residential school children have begun to come home. A very grisly story indeed. So, Kevin, perhaps you can set the table for this and uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, grisly discovery. Well, last April I was invited by nine elders in the Mohawk Nation around uh, Brantford, Ontario, to come and help identify and start an excavation at what's actually the oldest Indian residential school in Canada. It was set up by the Church of England in 1832, it's a very stark building when you go and look at it. It's it's um, it's almost the epitome of these buildings. You know the kind of sense of of the real horror that went on on in there. And uh, all around the sides of the schools, for about uh, probably almost uh, 50 acres, there's what has now been identified through ground penetrating radar is actually being a lot of dislocated soil that was deliberately dumped on areas that children identified uh, where there were children buried, and um, I was invited to come and start excavating these sites and look at them, and that's what we've been doing since October. We employed uh, the ground penetrating machine to identify some of the sites, and um, using other eyewitnesses in that, we actually began digging at a site only about 50 yards from the school. Within an hour, we uncovered the remains of uh, various bones. 
and these were in association with articles of clothing, buttons which were identified as coming from the uniforms of, of children of the school, and um, also charcoal, which we believe came from the school furnace, because it was a fairly common practice in many of the residential schools, of course, to, to incinerate the remains of the children who had died. So we came across uh, you know, a crime site, because a, as a result, we had two archaeologists came in very soon after that, and they both identified one of the bones as definitely coming from the thigh bone of a child, probably four or five years old. We're in the process of having actual chemical analysis and that down on the bones now. Uh, during January, we have people outside Canada looking at this, uh, and they're going to be issuing a report which we believe will confirm that these are definitely the remains of children. This has never been done in Canada before. This is the first time a grave at an old residential school has been disinterred and the bones analyzed. And the other unique thing is that the Mohawks have said this is their crime site. It's under their jurisdiction, not the crown of England or Canada, the government of Canada, since those are the parties that were, you know, complicit in this crime. So it's it's a very really um, amazing breakthrough, and it's been coming for almost 20 years in this work. But what's quite astounding is the fact that this has never been picked up at all by the Canadian media. There's a, there's a complete blackout on the story, and uh, we've. The only way we've been able to get out the truth is through the Internet and radio stations like yours. So this is, uh, you know, it, it's kind of um, really odd. You know, I was saying to people the other day that the more the truth comes out, the more the denial seems to kick in and the, the less people, at, at least at an official level, seem to be willing to acknowledge this. Yeah, absolutely stunning and, and just staggering information. And I suppose it would be surprising that the, uh, the mainstream media hasn't picked up on it if people really believe that their, their raison d'etre was really to report what's going on instead of to cover up discoveries like these. But I'm glad that people like yourself with the intestinal fortitude to do this work are, are there doing it because I don't know if personally I'd be able to handle digging up the bones of, uh, of murdered children, uh, just absolutely horrific. Um, was there a reason that this particular school was chosen for this, or, or do you think that this would be a common uh, thing to be discovered if this were done at other residential schools around Canada? Well, we, you know, we know that, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of the work uh, in the West, and uh, that's where a lot of the residential schools were based. But it's interesting about this school because it was the very first one ever built in Canada. It's like a symbol of, of the whole system, uh, you know, that was really designed to destroy a culture, the remnants of what was remaining of a culture, by uprooting and, and, and destroying the next generation. And I was invited by these Mohawks not accidentally, because for many years, the same people have been fighting long and hard to preserve their land as it continually dwindles. Um, the Mohawks were originally granted about a million acres of land in that part of the world by the British government after the, the Mohawks had been allies with them against you guys in the American Revolutionary War, uh, they were granted what's called the Haldeman Tract, which is a big chunk of southwestern and southern Ontario, about a million acres. And over time, it's been dwindled down to maybe 30,000 acres. So they've been, the very same people who invited me have been fighting for a long time in trying to preserve the land and setting up roadblocks to, to hold on to that. So they really have a strong sense that bringing home their children from these schools is part of their whole struggle to retain their identity as a nation. Um, to say, look, this happened to our children, we have every right to investigate it and not rely on the, the people who did it, the government and the churches, to, to tell us that things are fine now that, you know, the government's apologized and given a bit of money. That clearly is, is not enough. And so, it, you know, I think it's all related to that sense that they, they know they're sovereign people. Uh, they never signed treaties with Canada or the Crown. Um, 
they stand on that sovereignty all the time, and so I don't think it's accidental that they were the ones who really were the first to to break the soil and take that step. Yes, exactly right. So, so as you say, you're based more in on the West, and you've uh, done a lot of your work in British Columbia. But as you say, that this is obviously a national problem and, and really an international one. I, I have no doubt when you start thinking about what happened in America as well. And uh, you, you mentioned that you're working with a, a tribunal. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit of detail about what that is and how that came about. Well, you know, at about uh, three years ago now, I was invited to a number of places in Europe. Starting in Ireland, there was uh, survivors of exactly the same kinds of crimes uh, in Ireland. As we know, these things happened all over the world. Children were uprooted. As a matter of fact, there was a thing in the news the other day where the Catholic Church admitted that in Spain, under the Franco dictatorship, they took over 600,000 children, and these were children often of political opponents of Franco. And they told the parents that the children had died, and then they they trafficked these children to other families and made a lot of money in the process. So, I mean... This kind of child trafficking in that it wasn't confined just to Aboriginal children in Canada or the U.S. It, it happened all over the world, and the people in Ireland who this happened to contacted me and asked me to come and speak because they were beginning the same process of identifying the crimes, beginning lawsuits against the churches, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> and so I began to meet these people, and eventually we had the idea, look, um, the churches and governments are united around the planet on this. You know, the Vatican, which is one of the main perpetrators of this, had this operation going on in many countries. Uh, so why shouldn't we be united, too, across borders? We began to put out the idea that there should be a tribunal which is uh, independent of governments. It's like um, uh, founded really on the common law notion that when governments and courts are not defending the rights of children, the rights of people, we have the right under common law to do that for ourselves. And in many cases, the, we know that the police and the governments collude with the churches in concealing these things. Um, and so, you know, it's funny sitting in Dublin listening to the survivors of these orphanages and things like the Magdalene Laundries where, where young girls had their babies taken from them and then they were worked their whole life, and many of them died in these sweatshops. Um, listening to the survivors of this, it was like sitting in an Aboriginal healing circle. The same trauma, the same inability to talk about it, the same cover-up and repression from the government trying to get people not to pursue this. I mean, you know, it, it was like listening to our story here. And so um, that's when we realized we needed this this tribunal. So it's been a long time in coming. It's been very difficult to establish because there's been a lot of resistance, a lot of hesitance on the part of survivors, um, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it, it's very traumatic to talk about these things. And it's also uh, when you're facing a world that doesn't want to look at the fact that these religious organizations could be responsible for these things. I mean, it's hitting a lot of nerves for people, but um, nevertheless, we've made progress. And, in fact, um, we do have interest now among a couple of politicians in the European Parliament to look at the evidence we're, we're uncovering, the forensic evidence, um, the things that I've documented in hiddennolonger.com, uh, the eyewitness testimonies, the documentation showing that half these children never came back from these school. They died en masse decade after decade. Uh, from deliberate genocide. And so we're trying to get the European Parliament to look at this, um, you know, and, and try to bring charges against the government churches of Canada. 
Well, one can only support you in that quest, and it may be quixotic, but it has to be done for the memory of the, those people who were murdered in these in this residential school system, not only in Canada, but as you say, in, in many countries around the world. And it is uh, just a, a horrific task in so many ways, but we'll continue talking about it tonight with our guest, Kevin Annette. You can be found at numerous websites, including kevinannette.com and hiddenfromhistory.org, where you can watch the documentary film about his uh, his quest in uh, called Unrepentant, and you can also download Hidden No Longer Genocide in Canada, past and present from hiddennolonger.com, a free PDF download of the entire book. So I hope people will take advantage of that and learn more about this extraordinary case. But let's take a short break. We'll be back with more on Corporate Report Radio right after this. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Kevin Annette of HiddenNoLonger.com and HiddenFromHistory.org and KevinAnnette.com and many other places besides about the incredible story of the work that he's done to try to draw attention to the Canadian Holocaust that took place in the Canadian Indian Reserv- Reservations residential school system. Uh, just an absolutely incredible story and uh, and one that really has to be seen and read and heard to be believed because it is uh, just unspeakable, some of the things that went on. But uh, Kevin, for people out there who may not have heard your story before and, and don't know where you're coming from, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with this story. Well, you know, it started for me, I often say it began when I came to Port Alberni as a clergyman 20 years ago, it was 1992. Really, for me, it started younger than that. When I was a teenager, I first began to have contact with some Native communities up north, and I never recovered from what I saw in northern BC in the villages. I, I couldn't imagine that people lived like that in Canada. It, 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 uh, it just changed my world, uh, that kind of poverty and that. And I always knew in my life that it had come from somewhere, but nobody in my culture ever wanted to say where. You know, it was kind of this idea that Indians were just like that. They just drank and they couldn't lead a proper life and there were people to be avoided. So I guess you could say I sought them out when I came to Port Alberni. Uh, it was a community on Vancouver Island, which is about one-third Native, but there were no Indians in any of the churches, working in any of the stores, and I had to know why. And so I went out, and it happened on my first visit. I was marrying an older Native couple, and he had gone to the Alberni Residential School, which was run by the very church I was working for, the United Church of Canada. And he told me that his best friend had been murdered in the school and buried in the hills behind the school. And when I heard that, I realized that, you know, well, I found it hard to believe at first, but then the more I began to hear those stories in Native homes, I realized I had to do something about it. I had to open up my church. I had to try to help these people in some way because the effects of what they had gone through was destroying their families. I mean, it was, you know, um, the, the suicide level, uh, drug abuse, alcohol, everything attributed in many ways to that trauma that was ongoing. And what I realized is that unlike in our culture and other cultures, people weren't getting over it. It was they were passing on on generation after generation, and um, I had to I had to know why. It was my second child had just been born. Uh, I think that was big a big reason for me too. My daughter Eleanor was only a month old when we moved to Port Alberni, and I was thinking think of all those little children who died, you know, who froze to death, or starved to death, or were beaten to death in these schools, and they're lying in the ground out there somewhere. 
I mean, who wouldn't be concerned about that? And I realized I had to, I had to take responsibility because it's my church that had done it, my culture that had done it. And it really, for well, me, it was. You, you ask that question rhetorically, but it's an important question yeah. to really contemplate. I mean, why? Who wouldn't be concerned about that? And why have you met with such resistance along the path of trying to uncover this this hidden history? You know, James, I still, after 20 years doing this work, I still can't answer that question. I don't understand how it is that people can look at this, know what happened, and then, you know, the classic cases, I have an older aunt in Edmonton, and she is a loyal United Church member. She knows what the church did to me and my family and to all these kids. She says how horrible it is, and then she goes to church the next Sunday and puts money in the collection plate. And she continues to fund these people who are hiding this crime and protecting what happened. I don't understand, A, how it could have happened, and B, how they can, in good conscience, cover this up and pretend that a bit of money and apology somehow resolves any of this. So I, you know, for me, it's, it, you, I, I think what's a clue for me is the fact that there was a, uh, the American prosecutor in Nuremberg, uh, Robert Jackson, he once gave a talk to a Jewish um, synagogue in New York right after World War II, and he made a comment which got everybody there quite upset, and he said, the SS were no different than you and I. Because in those same circumstances, many of us would do the same thing. They were not psychotic. They were people who were in a chain of command who were told that it was right and necessary to obey the law and lock these people up and even kill them. That's the mentality that exists in any system of genocide, and that's what was going on in the residential schools. And now the churches feel they've got a lot to lose, and they do on one level. But if they came clean about this, they'd gain a lot more than they lose. And that's something I don't think they realize because they're hiding behind their lawyers and their fear. And, you know, like any big institution, they're more concerned about that than just doing the right thing. Unfortunately so. And it is important for people out there to realize, of course, this story is not about you personally or individually, but you yourself have suffered for, for trying to bring this truth to light, including losing the ministership of St. Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni. And uh, just to be clear, were you defrocked by the United Church or did you resign that position? Well, what happened was um, I, after about two and a half years working there, I found out that not only these crimes have been going on in the residential school, but the church was involved in a big way in land theft, in taking land that the missionaries had grabbed uh, Native people and selling it off for a lot of money to logging companies, mining companies, and other interests. When I called them on that, they fired me. Um, and I was eventually, I was the only minister in United Church history to be publicly defrocked uh, at a tune of a quarter of a million dollars. They went to my wife at the time and urged her to divorce me and helped her with a divorce. They did everything possible to to ruin my life because they knew what I was sitting on. And it really backfired on them over the years. But um, it's funny when those things happen to you, if you don't buckle and if you keep asking questions, you persi- by persisting over time, the power of that is that it can really move mountains. I've found that in my own life. Um, and so it, it's the disadvantage of, of, of trying to shoot down a whistleblower is that they're also admitting something by trying to do that, and the world starts asking questions, and that's what's happened. I mean, I could never imagine 20 years ago they would have ever gotten this far, but it has. We've we've even forced an apology to the federal government about this. So, you know, it does work. Well, I I hope people really understand what you just said there, because it's such an important thing and something that I've been learning in my own life is that it is all a war of attrition, and it is about persistence. So on that note, we will persist with this conversation right after these messages. If you want to get in on tonight's conversation, it's 1-800-313-9443. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
listening to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. And tonight we are talking to Kevin Annette of KevinAnnette.com, also HiddenFromHistory.org and HiddenNoLonger.com. We're talking about the abuse that went on in the Canadian Indian residential school system for many, many decades and was covered up for, for well, the entirety of that time. And just more startling things continue to come out as Kevin Annette presses ahead with his investigation into what really happened and what people can do about it. And again, if you're interested in talking tonight to Kevin Annette, you can get in on the conversation at 1-800-313-9443. So, Kevin, uh, let's get more into some of the more recent developments of things that you've been doing and uh, things that you've been doing over the years uh, regarding this. And and you've mentioned going to, to Dublin and uh, being part of international tribunals and things like that, uh, I, I assume that this is an issue that that really has reached out and uh, has had effects not only, of course, in Canada, although there is that, but as you say, even in Europe. So perhaps you can talk a little bit more about sort of the international implications of this story. Well, to give an example of that, a couple of times now I've been to Rome, and as your listeners probably know, the Pope Joseph Ratzinger is personally implicated in a lot of this stuff. The Church has had a policy since 1962, the Catholic Church, um, uh, in a document called Crimen Solicitanus. And what it says is when children are harmed or abused by a priest anywhere in the world, in the Catholic Church, the bishop and the priest are under a papal order to cover that up, to not tell the police, to silence the victim. They call it the pontifical secret, in which it's considered a sin to rape a child, but not a crime. What's the crime? The crime is telling about it. And so any priest or bishop who discloses what happened gets excommunicated, not for raping a child, but for talking about it. That is a major crime under the law. That's called obstruction of justice. It's called colluding in, in you know, a criminal conspiracy in a sense, in, in, in effect. Joseph Ratzinger, who's the Pope now, actually signed letters ordering bishops in America to do that, to enforce that policy. So one of the reasons that American lawyers are not going after the Pope is because that's International obstruction of justice is a very serious crime. It's telling people in one country to break the law under the sanction of the Roman Catholic Church. So um, what I often say to people is you have to know that it's a very dangerous thing to take your child to a Catholic Church because if they're ever harmed, everything, the whole machinery of that church is going to be set up to make sure it's never, it never comes out. And um, why people tolerate that, I mean, it is, is you know, mind-boggling to me, but... What we realize is this involves, this is kind of the common denominator uniting survivors all over the world. Rome is a symbol of that. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church gave sanction to the whole Indian residential school system in North America. It was really set up by the Jesuits back in the 1800s. And, um, and so really a lot of roads lean to Rome on this whole issue. We've worked with uh, groups around the world continually who gather in Rome who demand that, you know, there be criminal charges brought against the church. Now, the problem is the governments tend to cooperate with the Vatican. Obama's own attorney general backs the Vatican's position that it's the Pope is somehow immune from prosecution because a head of, he's a head of state, which is absurd um, because heads of state can be prosecuted for crimes. They tried it with Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. Uh, so there's not even a defense under international law. But the, but the point is the governments protect the Vatican and uh, for one reason, it's because they've had a long relationship. Uh, you know, the, the most obvious example is the way the Vatican helped the U.S. government smuggle a lot of Nazis out of the ward through the Vatican rat lines at the end. So there's been kind of that long history of doing that. But it means that in many ways, these churches are immune from prosecution. So 
it really requires some soul searching to say, well, look, when when the, these institutions are clearly above the law, what what do people do? Uh, there has to be another way of approaching this that's far more recognizing that the problem is a lot more deep rooted than a bad law or a bad pope. It, it's centuries old. It goes to the very heart of the European history and their view of children and innocence and nature and how they basically declare war against all of them. And I, you know, I, it, it requires that we all do a lot of more soul searching and say it's time to get rid of those ideas and institutions that cause that. And so I think that's where a lot of us are at now. We don't need a tribunal into the obvious anymore. I think we, a lot of us know what the problem is. We have the evidence. The world just isn't listening. We have to now say, how do we disestablish this old regime? How do we bring about something new that's going to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And that's more and more where I'm at in the work I do. Well, that's extremely important to note because, as you as you've pointed out, there have been all sorts of uh, uh, tribunals and commissions and investigations and uh, whitewashes and uh, attempts to bribe people, basically with uh, with money to try to get them to shut up and things like that. And uh, there comes a point when that's just not going to serve justice at all. So, I want to continue on with that point in a moment. But we have a caller on the line from New Brunswick. We have Werner on the line from New Brunswick. So, Werner, thank you for joining us tonight. What's on your mind? Yeah, good evening. Uh, good evening, uh, Reverend uh, Annette, and uh, good evening, Mr. Corbett. Uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah, and uh, I came as an immigrant to this country, and uh, one thing uh, I've been living here now for over 42 years, and one thing uh, I came to recognize, uh, it seems to be a tradition in the Anglo world that the criminals have to retire with the, uh, uh, with the uh, fruits of their Crime, why the victims get victimized over and over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am very much disappointed in, uh, at the self-righteousness of so many people in this country, you know, who still think they are an exceptional people in the uh, world community. That's true. Uh, there is that self-righteousness among Canadians, and... For them to be sitting on these crimes and these graves and not even realizing it and even denying it when they learn it, I mean, I, I, this is why it's, uh, like I say, something that goes a lot deeper than just one law. It, it's, it's the whole way of people view themselves and the deep Holocaust denial that, that Canadians are engaged in. Uh, that's basically what it is, you know, and it is not just it goes way past abuse. What would happen nowadays and uh, this has been, go- had been going on for over 100 years. What would happen nowadays when, pe- uh, when uh, parents send their children to school uh, and they have to expect that at least half of them uh, don't make it to grade 12 alive? Well, that's exactly what, what the statistics are. The, uh, they, even the, uh, the government's admitted that the 50% death rate was, was standard in a lot of the schools across the country. I, I don't even want to call them schools. They were prison camps. They got very little formal education. They were deliberately exposed to communicable diseases. This has been proven. They used tuberculosis and smallpox, deliberately infected the healthy from the sick. That was a standard practice in these schools. So it was it was out-and-out out genocide, yeah. And uh, as I say, there was a, in Quebec, there was a Duplessis orphans. Yeah. And uh, now I ask the question, Canada's finest, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they were part of this crime, and they didn't have a clue over a period of a hundred years what was going on in the residential schools? 
Well, no, we know they did very well, uh, very much covered the stuff up. And, uh, and as I say, you know, they fit about in the, in, into the same into the same uh, groupings as any kind of a, a secret police or whatever criminal police organization in any kind of a dictatorship. Yep. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but Canada, there was one country, uh, the East German Stasi had uh, more of their citizens on, on file than any country in the world except one country, Canada. Canada actually has more people with files on them by the and it is amazing. than any country in the world. Yeah. And it, uh, it will be amazing for some people to find out what's all written in those files, yeah. what kind of lies and everything where people are being maligned. Basically, yeah. they're being targeted. They're being set up for organized stalking, for gang stalking, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And as I say, uh, I appreciate very much that uh, you have had the stamina to carry that through. And it is high time that people in this country start to take a good look at themselves. Where do they stand? Absolutely agreed. And unfortunately, as you point out, there are way too many people in Canada who feel self-righteous about their place in this world and think of themselves with warm fuzzies about peacekeeping and all of this wonderful rhetoric that Canada has constructed for itself. But uh, but the grim reality is much worse. With this attitude, they set themselves up for even bigger crimes, what we have seen now over the last few years with all those military actions in other countries. And then they want to be looked at as the great heroes. Exactly. Well, as the as the uh, famous song goes, if you tolerate this, then your children will be next. And uh, nothing could be more pertinent to a story like this one. So, Werner, thank you very much for your call. And uh, Kevin, just continuing with what we were talking about there, talking about how we put this, how we take this forward from this point, knowing that there will be no justice that's really possible for many of the whitewash commissions or any of the things that have been instituted at an institutional level to look into these crimes. Uh, what do you think is the way forward here, and will we ever see something even approaching justice for the people who have had their lives and generations of their family really ruined by these uh, hor- horrific affairs? I don't think there will be justice under the present social disorder. Um, it certainly won't happen through the courts of Canada, because the courts have already ruled time and again that they can't rule on genocide. They will not indict the Crown for for uh, for these gen- genocidal acts. So we have to um, uh, find other ways of dealing with this. Uh, the Native people themselves have been talking about setting up their own courts of justice to, to look at this. Uh, people in Canada who go to these churches can stop putting money in the plates. They can uh, look, you know, and it might be naive to assume the government will do this, but to get them to take away the charitable tax status of these churches. When you threaten these churches in their money belts, that's when they start responding. And we should not, uh, you know, one of the Chippewa elders uh, made the statement the other day to me. He said, these churches should not be allowed to legally operate in this country anymore, and that would be a big step forward in, in getting justice. So I think there's there's um, direct ways that people can do that. I think eventually in Canada we have to escape from under the Crown's authority. We have to set up a republic here like you did in America, like my people did in Ireland. We have to cut the ties with the Crown so we can put the Crown on trial. And so I think it's going to take those bigger steps. But it also require a kind of a personal spiritual kind of um, reformation in people's lives, to recognize that the whole idea of saying to another people, you don't have the right to be who you are, we have the right to invade your country, whether it's Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere, that has to go, because it's going to destroy us eventually, if, unless we get rid of that genocidal mentality, which seems to be so endemic to so-called Western civilization. 
Well, I think you are right. I think nothing will really happen until we see change happen at an even more fundamental level than we could we could really think about uh, in the near term. But certainly we have to have those long-term goals. And uh, Republic of Canada sounds very sweet to my ears, and uh, we'll see if that ever really develops. But uh, you have been in this for, for a number of years now, and uh, as, as have I doing the, the work that I'm doing at CorbettReport.com, just trying to let people know about issues like these. And certainly I've seen over the past five years that I've been doing this, uh, certainly a great change in public perception of this uh, material and their ability to, to take on board this material and really consider it. What do you think about the way that the public's reaction has, has changed or perhaps stayed the same for you over the years? Well, you know, I haven't really seen uh, a big change, except uh, among some of the younger people, they seem to be very open now. Uh, now that they have the information, they, they want to do something with it. The older generations, I think, pretty much are a write-off. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I'm 55, so I'm, and I'll say that lightly. Um, people are so set in their ways. I have seen very few older people willing to even look at, at this history and, and, and even how it's happening today. Um, so I look to the future. I, I think we've got to get this information into the curriculum. We've got to start teaching kids who are five and six years old, not only about this crime, but asking how could this crime have happened? What is the kind of society that you're in that would allow this? We've got to awaken people at a very young age on this stuff. So I think, it, you know, getting teaching, first of all, the, the real history is the first step, a really important step. Also reclaiming what is taken from us, and this is something the Mohawks tell me all the time when I'm working with them. This was always our land, they say. We have to reclaim it. We have to reclaim our identities, the things that were wiped out. You know, I, when people say, what's genocide, I don't point to graves in the ground. I point to a shopping mall. And I say this corporate culture that eliminates all differences, that makes us these, you know, spiritual and moral zombies, uh, you know, that's to me the symbol of the genocide that happened to all of us. And we have to recover our own minds, first of all, and our lives. And I think a lot of people listening you know what I'm talking about. It's we've got to say no to this whole corporate dead culture and become living human beings again and that's that's the way we answer their genocide i think well that's an excellent way of putting it because it really is a type of cultural genocide when you start to think about it and we are what's being destroyed is humanity itself our humanity what makes us human beings and individuals and and people with with pasts and histories and differences and things that should be celebrated and and, and instead, what we get is this mon- monotonous cult, uh, corporate culture, as you put it, that just infests the, the, the entire landscape and makes everyone into these mindless zombies that do nothing but go and, and shop and spend and, uh, and get cocooned in their little lives of uh, just going through their nine-to-five job and then trying to drink the pain away after work. I mean, it's a, it's a bleak picture, but unfortunately, that's what we're being engineered into. And I think anyone who has uh, looked at the, the degradation of our society over the past half a century at least, would uh, would have to see that's the trajectory that we're on. So, again, it, I think you're exactly right. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier, I think, about this being a war of attrition. And it's not necessarily the, the strongest or the, the, the best uh, player that, that wins the game. It's the one that just keeps slugging away inning after inning until eventually um, you tire out the other team. You know, and really what we're up against, I, it, it's a dead shell. I mean, I, I uh, when I was outside the Vatican for the first time, I was really surprised. I expected it to be this ominous, evil kind of presence. i tell you what it felt like. It felt like a dead shell. There was nothing there. It was a big appearance, but there's nothing behind it. It was literally like looking at nothingness. And um, I found that interesting in the Bible. The Hebrew word for um, for evil means nothing in the Hebrew language. And so, to me, like what we're up against, doesn't really have a soul it just exists 
and it feeds off people. It's like a parasitic, you know, it's, it's like a spiritual parasitic organism almost. And it's, it's, once people recognize that, they can take back their minds, which are so influenced by it. Um, I realized that when I first began to talk about the missing children to audiences, and I saw this blank look in their eyes. It's like it didn't register to them. And, and when priests come out of their church and start yelling at us whenever we're holding protests or vigils, I say, well, look, uh, you know, I remember going to an Anglican minister, and I said, what if this was your child? I mean, do you have children? He said, yeah, I have two sons. I say, what if this was one of your own kids? And, and he was lying there somewhere. What would you want? And his, he blinked, and it's as if he had never even thought of the question. It, w- it wasn't part of his life. So it's kind of like people have to realize this is an issue of the heart not the mind ultimately. There has to be a hard response to this, and that's when things change. So I think it's all related to recovering ourselves, you know, reclaiming what, what's being uh, driven out of us. Exactly right, and, and that's an important point in so many ways, and I guess for our media-saturated uh, corporate landscape, perhaps people out there would best relate to something like the analogy of the, uh, the Wizard of Oz. It's really just the man behind the curtain pulling the levers right. who, who looks like this big, intimidating thing, but it's all edifice, it's all facade, and once yeah. you peek behind it and realize there's nothing inside but us, I mean, we are the heart of this beast, and if right. we remove ourselves from the beast the beast will collapse it's it's really just uh it's that simple in so many different ways but on that note let's take a, a short breather we'll be right back to to finish up tonight's episode of the broadcast uh, with kevin annette so please hang on and uh we'll be right back after these messages friends, James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we have been talking to Kevin Annette. He is available at HiddenNoLonger.com, HiddenFromHistory.org, KevinAnnette.com. There will be links, of course, in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio, so please go there within an hour or two of tonight's broadcast, and I will have the links up there in case you missed them uh, from tonight's broadcast. But Kevin, just in the final few minutes here, perhaps we can try to put this into perspective for people about what they can do on an individual or personal level to help uh, you in, in particular and the, the quest, I suppose, in general to try to bring more, more, uh, more, more light to this uh, hidden story of the, the absolute unspeakable genocide that's, that has taken place in the Canadian residential school system. I'd say, first of all, people need to educate themselves, so go to those websites. Um, also, make a stink, you know. These are children we're talking about. Children are continuing to suffer because of this reign of terror. And this affects everybody everywhere. We need to have people make a public stink about this, be active. There's nothing that achieves results quicker than if you take a few picket signs and stand outside a Catholic church on Sunday morning. I'm telling you, by doing that, you alert a lot of interest. You get uh, people asking questions. And that's the first step in all of this, stirring things up, stirring people out of their mental lethargy. Uh, and also uh, contacting me, I'm going to be traveling in the U.S. Uh, in February and January, giving lectures uh, on the East Coast and also in Duluth, Michigan, um, or is it Duluth, Minnesota? I'm not sure. Anyway, Duluth, wherever that is, I'm going to be um, 
uh, speaking to a number of groups there in early February. And um, I'm working more in the States now uh, because of the similarities of a lot of these issues. So if people want to get a hold of me, you can write to me, uh, hiddenfromhistory1, like the number one, hiddenfromhistory1 at gmail.com. And, uh, again, our website, itccs.org, you can follow a lot of the work of our tribunal. Excellent. And I suppose uh, just uh, coming up in the, in the next few months, what, what specifically will you be working on? Well, I'm also returning to Brantford. We're going to gather a lot of this evidence. We're doing excavations, and this is another thing people can help with. Uh, there's many of these sites in America as well as Canada. Getting together with the local Native people and encouraging them to take that step, the Mohawks have put out the call to Native nations everywhere to identify these grave sites and start repatriating the children's remains for proper burial. That's something that can unite all of us, just giving a proper burial to these children and honoring them in this way with memorial sites, with telling the real history, and holding the people responsible, accountable for these things. Um, and so once we get the evidence of that, we want to take it to Europe, we want to take it around the world, and use this as a springboard, this knowledge that the final proof that genocide was planned and, and occurred by these churches and governments uh, to take the kinds of steps we talked about over the last hour or so. Uh, I really urge people to, to help us with this because... Like you said earlier, if you don't take action today, your own children in the next generation are the ones who will be affected by this. That's exactly right. I mean, there's so many reasons to get involved, not only, of course, that it, it can affect you in the future, it can affect your family, but just also for the memory of those that were lost. And also, we are witnesses to history, and if we aren't here speaking up about what happened, then it does become the hidden pages of history, and and it becomes lost in in the, uh, I guess, the, the, conv- the, the story that they want to weave around uh, the history of our countries and our peoples and what happened. So... We really are the uh, the people who know what happened, and it's our job to bring that truth to other people. So, Kevin, ha- Kevin, Annette, my hats off to you for all the work that you've been doing on this front, and to all the listeners out there. Thank you for listening in, and I hope you will spread this information yourself to try to bring more awareness to this important tale. And that's it for tonight. I will be back tomorrow night, as I say, with Denis Roncourt. So, I hope you'll join me for that. And thank you once again for tuning in to Corbett Report Radio for another year of broadcasts.